On the evening of September 2nd, 1935, a deadly hurricane struck the Florida Keys. Every living creature on the islands ran for shelter as howling winds stripped trees bare and swirled the ocean's waves into a frenzy. The storm hit the middle and upper keys hardest, especially where a government construction site spread across several of the islands. The workers' houses were little more than boards and tar paper. After the furious storm passed, most of the flimsy structures were completely destroyed. Many of the workers lost their lives. In the days after the hurricane, bodies bobbed in the surf. Others decomposed on the sandy beaches. Local residents from neighboring islands came to help clean up and rebuild. Among them was arguably Key West's most famous resident, author Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway motored up on his large fishing boat and spent the next several days aiding recovery teams. As he worked, he learned that most of the dead workers had served in World War I, just as he had. The author grew enraged. He felt the federal government didn't do enough to care for its military veterans and prevent a tragedy like this. He expressed his anger in the best way he knew how, with precise, vicious language. He wrote an essay titled, Who Killed the Vets? A Scathing Criticism of the American Establishment. Hemingway's public condemnation of the United States drew attention to the tragedy in the Keys, and from halfway across the world, the Soviet Union took note. The essay became the first entry in a file hidden deep in a Moscow vault, a file that would one day contain records of Hemingway's possible career as a Soviet spy. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on Ernest Hemingway's alleged life of espionage. The writer spent the early years of his career traveling the world and building a network of government and military contacts, a network that may have sent him on a series of adventures in the world of spycraft. But the details remain shrouded in secrecy. Today, we'll follow Hemingway's life as an artist and rebel, from his early obsession with wartime action, through his covert missions in Spain and Cuba, to his final days, plagued by paranoia. Then we'll analyze two conspiracy theories about Ernest Hemingway's alleged foray into espionage. Some believe there's concrete evidence that he was a Soviet asset. Others claim his allegiances lay with the United States and that he acted as a double agent, set on taking down fascism no matter the cost. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Ernest Hemingway remains a titan of American literature. He won the Pulitzer and Nobel Prizes, and his life experience was as wide-ranging as his stories. But before his writing success, his origins were humble. In the early 1900s, Hemingway spent his childhood between Oak Park, Illinois, and a lakeside cabin in northern Michigan. He learned to love traveling and the outdoors, and for the rest of his life, he'd seek the quickest path to adventure. As he grew older, Hemingway wrote for his school paper, and in time, he rolled that experience into a day job at the Kansas City Star. By age 18, Hemingway was spending his time honing his distinctive, stripped-down style of writing, and he seemed to be headed for a long, storied career as a local newspaper man. But war was raging in Europe. As World War I erupted, Hemingway opted to join the war effort as a volunteer for the American Red Cross. In early 1918, he headed straight for the front lines in Italy. But while Hemingway wanted to be near the action, he wasn't fighting. He worked as an ambulance driver, shepherding wounded men off the battlefield. He continued this role right up until he was badly injured in a mortar attack a few months later. Even after a long rehabilitation in an Italian hospital, the wound meant his soldiering days were over. Hemingway reluctantly returned to the U.S., took another newspaper job, and married a woman named Hadley Richardson. But he desperately wanted to return to Europe. So, soon enough, he convinced his paper to make him a foreign correspondent. With that, Hemingway and Hadley moved to France in 1921. In Paris, Hemingway fell in with a group of writers and philosophers who came to be known as the Lost Generation. Their ranks included Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and John Dos Passos. Hemingway's newspaper articles continued to be his primary source of income, but in France, he started to write short stories as well. In time, his stories grew longer, and he dabbled in novels— two of which catapulted him to success and were based on his life experiences. The Sun Also Rises, published in 1926, 
follows a group of American and British expatriates who shared a likeness to Hemingway's own friends and acquaintances in Paris. A Farewell to Arms, first published in 1929, centers on the life of a disillusioned ambulance driver in World War I, the same role Hemingway held in 1918 before he was wounded. Both novels were met with critical praise, and thanks to a growing international audience, Hemingway received substantial paychecks. But his actions in Paris also cost him something valuable, his marriage with Hadley. After too many months of infidelity, the couple divorced. Hemingway married his mistress, Pauline, and decided to leave Paris behind. With his new wife and newfound wealth, Hemingway set out for fresh adventures, this time in the Caribbean. He'd always enjoyed fishing, and some of the best waters for the sport were off the coast of Florida. Hemingway bought a house in Key West and continued working on his short stories and novels. By the early 1930s, his success in fiction allowed him to leave most of his journalism work behind, though he often missed the -the on-the-ground action of his correspondent years. When the hurricane struck the Florida Keys in 1935, Hemingway saw an opportunity to serve. He took his boat up the island chain with the intention to help the humanitarian efforts and perhaps write a few first-hand reports on the devastation. But his initial plans fell by the wayside when he saw the harrowing effects the storm had on a government construction site established by the New Deal. Many of the site's workers, most of whom were impoverished war veterans, died. And in Hemingway's mind, the tragedy was preventable. He channeled his rage into an essay called Who Killed the Vets?, a piece which shocked readers with its condemnation of the U.S. government. The essay was a departure for Hemingway. While his stories often depicted battlefield bravery against tyrants, his writing was mostly apolitical. Now it seemed the 36-year-old writer did have a political bent, one that could be interpreted as anti-American. If Hemingway's politicization started on a beach in Florida, it grew exponentially two years later. In 1936, civil war erupted in Spain between rebel fascist military generals and the republic's elected government. As heart-wrenching stories emerged from battles in the Spanish countryside, Hemingway longed to get involved. He convinced his former newspaper contacts to make him a foreign correspondent. And for the second time in his life, he went to war. Hemingway spent most of the year 1937 in Spain, making contacts among soldiers, foreign volunteers, and other journalists. One of these contacts included documentary filmmaker Joris Evans, a devout communist. Many who believed in communist ideals took an interest in the Spanish Civil War. It was seen as a proxy for Soviet and Nazi tensions. Each power picked a side. The Soviets backed the leftist Republicans, and the Nazis bolstered the fascist rebels. Having been through one world war already, Hemingway called the Spanish Civil War a, quote, dress rehearsal for the inevitable European war. Hemingway met Evans within days of arriving in Madrid. Like many other foreign correspondents, they stayed at the same hotel. 
The two became fast friends, and in time, Evans introduced Hemingway to some of his Soviet friends. Evans was well-connected to key Soviet players in Madrid, men who ate and drank exceptionally well, especially for living in a war-torn city. The Soviets managed to have access to plenty of vodka and caviar. As a lifelong drinker, Hemingway enjoyed such luxuries and mingled as he partook. The Soviets enjoyed having him around, too. Hemingway made no secret of his support for the Soviet-supported Republicans. Whether or not he agreed with their communist ideals, he saw the anti-fascist cause as the only noble side in the war. But not everyone agreed with his support of the Soviets, including some of Hemingway's writer friends from the Lost Generation. John Dos Passos, for example, publicly insinuated that Hemingway and his expatriate comrades were, quote, romantic American communist sympathizers. When Dos Passos' comments reached Hemingway, he was livid. In May 1937, he cornered Dos Passos in a train station, clenched his fists, and said, quote, Are you with us or are you against us? With that, Hemingway appeared to have drawn a line in the sand and told the world exactly where he stood. But toward the end of 1938, Hemingway left Spain and politics seemingly took a back seat in his life. The author had met a new mistress in Europe, Martha Gellhorn, and was now heading into his third marriage. Away from the battlefield, Hemingway returned to a simpler lifestyle, pursuing wine, women, and writing. Then, in 1940, Hemingway published For Whom the Bell Tolls, a novel that encapsulated his experiences in Spain and included a surprisingly nuanced presentation of the war, The novel was even-handed in the depiction of atrocities from both sides. It hardly contained the anti-fascist black-and-white sentiments of his wartime essays and public comments. Even Joris Evans, the ardent communist who introduced Hemingway to all those Soviet contacts, said the author had, quote, returned to his old point of view. Hemingway seemed to be moving on from his Soviet sympathies. But apparently, the Soviets never moved on from him. Hemingway's global contacts, fame, and vast audience made him a valuable asset to any cause. And the Soviets wanted to make sure that asset was theirs. So at the end of 1940, they reportedly sent one of their top U.S.-based spies to meet with the author. The mission was simple. Recruit Ernest Hemingway to join Soviet intelligence. Coming up, Hemingway learns Soviet spycraft. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.
This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. By 1940, Ernest Hemingway's writing career was well-established. His most recent novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, was based on his experiences in Spain during the Civil War. There, he'd met and mingled with Soviet officials and other well-known communists. But as it turns out... Even before his time in Spain, Soviet spy agencies were tracking Hemingway's career. Their efforts dated back to the essay Hemingway wrote after the 1935 hurricane in Florida, where he criticized the U.S. government. The article apparently garnered the attention of agents who worked for the NKVD, the Russian intelligence agency that later became the KGB. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. During World War II, Ernest Hemingway acted as a Soviet spy. We should note that most of the information about the NKVD's relationship with Hemingway was discovered after the fall of the Soviet Union, when Russian scholars first gained access to intelligence archives. These files were a vast, confusing archive of official reports, personal letters, and scribbled notes but researchers weren't allowed to remove them from their storage facility. However, almost as quickly as the files surfaced in the mid-1990s, they were classified again. From then on, all that was made public were handwritten notes researchers made about the files. Years later, a former CIA historian named Nicholas Reynolds relied on these notes for his book about Hemingway called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy. Based on Reynolds' analysis, we know that in 1940, the Soviets ramped up their efforts to recruit Hemingway. And one operative tasked with this recruitment succeeded in meeting the author during a book tour in New York. The operative's name was Jacob Golos. Golos ran a travel agency that served as a front for Soviet operations in the U.S., Using his business credentials, he obtained American passports, vetted espionage assets, and hired cutouts, usually innocent bystanders who could serve as messengers between him and his spies. Golos was like a character right out of one of Hemingway's novels. Charismatic and well-connected, he had several mutual acquaintances with the author, so it's likely one of them would have been the first point of contact. And an introduction wouldn't have been hard to make. Among his friends, the writer often railed about Hitler's war in Europe, especially as it pertained to Spain, Russia, and the innocent lives lost in the political bloodshed. As CIA historian Nicholas Reynolds put it, quote, 
Hemingway was still a passionate anti-fascist, and for that reason, pro-Soviet. Details about Golos's meetings with Hemingway are vague. Golos only wrote in his reports that after their introduction, Hemingway supposedly agreed to help the Soviets on, quote, ideological grounds. But Golos also said that he devised a plan for Hemingway to meet other Soviet agents. Hemingway had agreed to a secret system of communication called a material recognition signal. He would give Golos some postage stamps, likely torn in half or uniquely marked. Then Golos would give those to the Soviets so agents could use them to prove their identity and so Hemingway could trust them. After the book tour, Hemingway returned home, which was now a large farm in Cuba. By this point, his marriage to Martha Gellhorn was on the rocks, and Hemingway spent more and more time fishing on his beloved boat called Pilar. But while Hemingway tracked schools of marlin, the Soviets tracked him. Sometime in September 1943, a Soviet agent stationed in Havana located Hemingway and set a meeting. It's not known what they discussed, even if Hemingway made his views clear. Over drinks with a former communist ally around this same time, Hemingway said, quote, The U.S. is finished, just like France. The Russians are the only ones doing any fighting. But the lack of description in the Soviet file implies that nothing came of the meeting, if it even happened. It's possible the agent merely ran into Hemingway on the street in Havana and reported it. After all, if the author had passed on actionable information or agreed to any kind of clandestine activity, Soviet intelligence would certainly have it recorded. Without more details, all we know is that apparently, for the next few months, the Soviets focused their attention on the war in Europe, not Hemingway. By the spring of 1944, Hemingway found a way back into wartime action. The Allies were planning an enormous invasion for the early summer, and the author was determined to be there to bear witness. He once again worked his old newspaper contacts and got himself an assignment covering the D-Day invasion. That's how, on June 6th, 44-year-old Hemingway found himself at Omaha Beach. Hemingway was aboard one of the landing craft, watching the incredible fight unfold. Though the Allies secured the beach, the battle was too dangerous to allow press ashore. After witnessing the onslaught, he went back to London to write his articles. There, the Soviets were waiting for him. A note in the archive from 1944 alleges that there was a meeting between Hemingway and one of their agents in London. The Soviet agent reported he, quote, did not give us any political information, though he repeatedly expressed his desire and willingness to help us. It's likely Hemingway didn't have time to do more than express interest, because just a year later, the war was over. He returned to Cuba and new writing projects, while the U.S. abruptly turned to hunting communists in the Red Scare of the 1950s. Americans were fearful of hidden Russian spies in the U.S. government and even among the civilian population, which led to a series of political witch hunts led by Senator Joseph McCarthy. Hemingway was disgusted by the wave of McCarthyism. 
even once writing an obscene letter to the senator himself. However, after seeing his fellow creatives blacklisted for their work, he distanced himself from his previous anti-fascist writings and claimed that in the current era, they would be considered subversive and even pro-communist. In the American paranoia of the 1950s, even speaking out against the fascist civil war of 1930s Spain was suspect. There was no accounting for nuance or changing political tides. Thus, Hemingway backed off from any connection to Soviet contacts. The last mention of him in the Soviet archives was in October 1950, when they concluded that Hemingway had finally turned his back on them, and the file was closed. I think it's worth stating the obvious as far as this theory goes. The fact that the KGB has an entire file on Hemingway is pretty suspicious, not to mention his continued, often quoted support of communist goals. Most telling of all, he even once admitted to a friend that he'd done, quote, odd jobs for Soviet interests. Collectively, this implies some kind of long-term relationship with Soviet intelligence, even if it was largely ineffectual. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'll give the theory that Hemingway was a Soviet spy a 6. I can see that logic, but there are serious gaps in the proof. There are no original files to be examined, since if they even still exist, they're locked in a vault in Moscow. All we have is researchers' notes about the files they saw in the 1990s. And while he did meet Soviet spies more frequently than most Americans, Hemingway was also on the front lines of a proxy war in Spain. Thus, his staunch anti-fascism simply aligned him with the Soviets for that period of time. Think about American journalists who covered the war in Vietnam. Due to their proximity, they spoke to a broad range of people on both sides in order to get an accurate gauge of the war. And as for Hemingway, after the Spanish Civil War ended, he never really seemed to give the Soviets anything but platitudes. That's why I have to give this theory a four. While Hemingway's documented relationship with the Soviets alone raises questions, it seems there was even more to the famous writer's adventures in espionage. While Hemingway's mostly apolitical stance made him an unlikely spy, perhaps it led him to spy for more than just one country. Which brings us to our second and final conspiracy theory. Ernest Hemingway wasn't just working with the Soviets, he was a double agent. Hemingway had documented contact with Soviet agents during the Spanish Civil War and into the early 1940s, which petered out sometime in the 1950s. But to explore the theory that he may have been a double agent, it's worth returning to his time in Cuba. As we discussed, there was a gap in the timeline for recruiting Hemingway. Between meeting Jacob Golos in late 1940 and the Havana meetings in 1943, Hemingway seemed to be otherwise occupied, perhaps because he was running an American spy ring. In 1941, Hemingway met Robert Joyce, an American diplomat stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Havana. Joyce was a laid-back intellectual, much like Hemingway's old pals of the Lost Generation, and the two men became friends. 
Joy spent evenings at Hemingway's farm, drinking and talking about the Nazi Blitz in Europe and Havana's diverse communities of Germans, Spaniards, and Soviets. Joy soon realized that Hemingway knew his way around intelligence-gathering operations, thanks to his years embedded with Republicans in Spain. In Cuba, the author had connections with communists and civilians alike. So Joyce introduced him to his boss, Ambassador Spruill Braden, and Braden had big plans for the writer. In August 1942, deep in the midst of World War II, Braden invited Hemingway to the embassy in Havana. He told the author that he wanted to keep tabs on the city's fascist German and Spanish residents, and Hemingway was in an excellent position to help. Hemingway gladly agreed, and they got to work in September. They officially called their intelligence operation the Crime Section, though Hemingway fondly referred to it as the Crook Factory. Ultimately, Hemingway's role was to use his local network to keep Braden apprised of the scuttlebutt on the streets. At its peak, the Crook Factory employed 25 informants. Most were part-time, but a few worked exclusively for Hemingway. With a monthly budget of $500, nobody was getting rich, but everyone felt it was a good use of their time between talking over drinks at the liquor-laden debriefs at Hemingway's farm. Hemingway took the information gathered by his informants and produced frequent reports. Braden was often impressed by how thorough the details were. Unfortunately, little actionable intelligence ever seemed to come of it. While Hemingway and his ragtag band of acquaintances reported plenty of information, none of it was sent up the chain to Washington. Hemingway soon grew bored, perhaps indicating the spy ring was nothing more than a fun pastime for him. By early 1943, all records of crook factory operations ceased. But that didn't mean Hemingway's work for U.S. intelligence was over because it seemed like he decided to seek out an even bigger operation. Hemingway still had his esteemed fishing boat with him in Havana. So during his tenure with the U.S. Embassy, the author teamed up with the Office of Naval Intelligence for a new mission. He was going undercover to hunt down and sink Nazi submarines. Coming up, Hemingway's Soviet past catches up with him. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As his stint as a fledgling spy master in Havana was winding down, Hemingway set his sights on a more thrilling adventure as a U.S. operative. He didn't want to be limited to just writing about missions. He wanted to take them on himself. He said he hoped to be, quote, a secret agent of my government. To kick off this new exploit, Hemingway once again turned to Ambassador Braden, who had overseen the Crook Factory operation. Hemingway reminded him of the quality reports that the spy ring had produced. 
and asked to take on a new mission. The concept was simple. Hemingway and some of his crook factory associates would take his boat Pilar on long-distance cruises to hunt for Nazi U-boats. Then, once they tracked down a German sub, Hemingway would move in to destroy the U-boat. He told the ambassador he wanted to, quote, "...really have myself a party. Provided you will get me a bazooka to punch holes in the side of the submarine, machine guns to mow down the people on the deck, and hand grenades to lob down the conning tower." In 1942, German submarines sank nearly 15 Allied ships a month in the Caribbean. That was one almost every 48 hours. And all over the Atlantic, U-boats were terrorizing shipping lanes. Even a small contribution against the submarine threat would be immensely valuable. If not to naval victory, it would boost morale. So against all odds, the ambassador agreed to the plan. Hemingway was paired with a marine colonel named Boyden, better known as Cuckoo, thanks to his cavalier attitude and daring career as a pilot. He made sure Hemingway received radios, weapons, and fuel for his boat, as well as a dedicated marine officer to join his crew and train the others. Not only that, Colonel Cuckoo prepared an alibi for Hemingway. His cover story was that he was doing research for a history museum. If he were caught at sea, Hemingway had an official letter in multiple languages proving his case. Hemingway and Cuckoo called the plan Operation Friendless, and by the summer of 1942, the boat was ready to go. Unfortunately for Hemingway, finding Nazi submarines wasn't exactly easy. Much of the time at sea was spent fishing and playing long card games. In fact, at one point, Hemingway's wife, Martha, wondered if that wasn't the point. She speculated the operation was nothing more than Hemingway's excuse to access diesel fuel, which was rationed in wartime, for his trips to fish and drink with his buddies. Still, Hemingway did almost see some action. The closest he came to his naval combat fantasy was on December 9, 1942. Just after noon, Pilar's crew spotted a gray vessel on the horizon that looked like a U-boat. They gave chase, but the sub disappeared before the fishing boat could move in to attack. While there are several sources for details, Hemingway himself was the primary storyteller about his U-boat hunting days, so it's easy to see where he might have exaggerated. The tale seems to be an illusion of grandeur for an adventurous veteran writer who was thousands of miles from the real battlefield in Europe. Plus, much like his Crook Factory diversion, this naval escapade only lasted a few months. By the time Hemingway's assignment came to fruition in 1943, the U-boat presence in the Caribbean had declined. There was little need for Operation Friendless anymore, and Hemingway's boat was disarmed. It's still worth pointing out that a few weeks later, he received a personal commendation letter from Ambassador Braden, a document he cherished and carried with him for years. And interestingly enough, after his U-boat operation, Hemingway's timeline with the Soviet contacts did realign. One of their Havana agents came back around in late 1943, which would have been a good opportunity to debrief Hemingway about the U.S. Embassy operations. 
It's possible this was the only opportunity, as a few months later, Hemingway renewed his press credentials to witness the D-Day invasion in Normandy. But after that, records of his espionage exploits for the U.S. or Russia mostly disappeared at the war's end. So if Hemingway was a double agent, this was the peak of his career. We don't know if the Soviet agents in Havana knew about the Crook Factory or Operation Friendless, but it's safe to assume they didn't. After all, if they had real information about U.S. spy operations in Cuba or Hemingway literally hunting down U-boats, they would probably have noted it in their file. So it's unlikely Hemingway was an asset keeping them up to date. Still, based on the action-filled years working for the embassy in Cuba, it seems Hemingway spent more time on U.S. missions than Soviet ones. Though his reports to U.S. naval intelligence never seem to reveal any pertinent information about the Soviets to the Americans either. Regardless of which side benefited more from his wartime exploits, as the 1950s wore on, both allegiances came back to trouble Hemingway. As communist paranoia seized American culture, he suffered from his own paranoia. He believed the FBI had him under surveillance because of his Soviet sympathies. And this government monitoring would be justified for somebody who was suspected of being a double agent. His correspondence with friends and acquaintances also shifted in tone during the 1950s. He became more defensive and circumspect about his anti-fascist beliefs while remaining critical of the FBI. This behavior was suspicious and alarming to those that knew him, so much so that his friends planned more frequent visits to check on his health. It was as if Hemingway felt a deep sense of regret about his espionage adventures. Perhaps he feared serious reprisals over his wartime snooping, or even prison time. However, in April 1979, nearly two decades after his death, the FBI declassified their file on Hemingway and revealed that his concerns were unfounded. It turned out FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover personally reviewed Hemingway's file during the Red Scare. The final notes in the file are even in Hoover's own handwriting. He wrote that the Bureau knew Hemingway wasn't a communist, but rather a significant American figure whose opinion held weight with the public and thus opened him up to scrutiny. But just because the FBI director ruled that he wasn't a communist doesn't mean he wasn't a double agent. Given the Soviet files on Hemingway and his numerous spying missions for the U.S. Embassy in Havana, I'd give the double agent theory a six out of 10. He had relationships with Soviet and U.S. intelligence. It's not hard to believe he helped them equally, if unintentionally. True. And the FBI file wasn't the only proof that Hemingway wasn't spying for the U.S. government. In April 1944, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor to the CIA, even wrote that they denied Hemingway a place in their fledgling spy organization. While he did a few missions on behalf of the U.S. Embassy, it seems like those were just extensions of what he'd done his whole life, seeking the quickest way to adventure, like deep-sea fishing or battlefield reporting. For those reasons, I'll give this theory a three. 
Regardless of the short-lived nature of his espionage career, Hemingway was worldly by nature of his career and writing style. Being a die-hard adventurer and war correspondent let him cross paths with people of many nations. And the themes he examined in his work, like war, heroism, tragedy, were valuable topics in wartime propaganda, as was the size of his audience. It's not surprising he was courted by high-powered officials from all sides. He was an eloquent, outspoken celebrity, and people listened to him. Then perhaps, rather than being a spy for either Soviet or U.S. intelligence, it's more likely Hemingway wasn't an agent at all. He was simply a prominent American author whose writing and opinions could be used for valuable propaganda by both sides. Apart from the few examples we've discussed, though, like the hurricane essay, Hemingway was ardently against using his writing for politics. He wasn't impervious to flattery from government officials, but he kept his work off limits to their advances. He wanted his writing to reflect his own beliefs and not those of a single government. His stories may have been political, but in times of crisis, what art isn't political? Hemingway wrote about the human condition, so above all, he sought experience. His exploits in Spain, France, and Cuba were for his own edification and to fuel his writing, not for spy missions. Still, Hemingway made an obvious mark on the history of literature and a curious footnote in the history of espionage. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy by Nicholas Reynolds extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.